Hey, gang. How are you doing? Oh, yeah? I didn't know that. Thank you for letting us know. John, did you hear that? They love Video Night I Beyond, did. the first episode of the spinoff from Video Night where we discuss the sci-fi fantasy movies of 1980. And guess what this episode's about, everybody? More, but from 1981. <laughs> I'm ridiculous. Um, four films from 1981 there in the sci-fi fantasy kind of, you know, that world of beyond. That's the whole point of the show. And uh, what are the four films we are discussing, John? We are discussing Dragon Slayer, Excalibur, Clash of the Titans, and Escape from New York. One of these things is not like the others. <laughs> Which one do you want to start with? Uh, you know what? Let's do Dragon Slayer. Okay, the, the one I just crammed in last night. I, I just saw it like a year ago, but I wanted to watch it one more time in case I forgot anything. And good God. Disney really fumbled the ball on trying to launch an older skewing, like like their movies were always like PG at most, and this is really riding that line of almost R. And they got nervous, so they gave they they, they what co-financed it with Paramount and then sold them half the rights. So now it is a Disney co-production, but Paramount owns it completely in America. Yeah, because it's like I think it was Disney was international release. And it's like through like Buena Vista, I think, and then yeah, Paramount did all the domestic releasing. Yeah, there's stuff in this. I am shocked that it was an R. I mean, there's some serious gore. Yeah, especially at the end with that uh, where the princess gets eaten by the dragon. Yeah, yeah this, this like is... her foot off and stuff. <laughs> Family films in the '80s were different, kids. <laughs> wow. I mean, the fact that Raiders Lost Ark is considered a, a PG film is shocking to me. When people's faces melt off. Yeah, I actually was talking to my niece about that, where it's just going, yeah, there's this PG movie, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and at the end of it, you know, it's like, yeah, there's all these faces melt off, and it's things like, that sounds awesomely scary. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, we're going to watch that sometime. Yeah, it's, uh, I think it's a fascinating film. Uh, the special effects, for the most part, are absolutely top-notch. They don't have a whole lot of flaws, except for when they have the green screen, or what would we call it back then? It, was, um, it wasn't green screen. It was blue but... screen. No, it was before that. It was like a reverse projection or something like that, where they would have the screen behind them, and then they would oh, yeah, take yeah. a camera and project the image. I think that's rear, what rear, this... projection. rear projection. Rear projection. Thank you. I couldn't remember. Um that that stuff doesn't really hold up that well, but God, the puppetry, the 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 makeup that they use is phenomenal. Yeah, it, like the weakest of like any of those dragon effects really is just the uh, the dragon model that they have when they they have to have it breathe fire, and it's very obviously that they just have a flamethrower in the dragon's mouth. Right, it just just kind of hang, mouth hangs open and just this flame thing, and there's no movement there. It's just. Rod Puppet with <laughs> Rod Puppet with the flamethrower, whereas you know, like you look at the model, like the little claymation-ish model that they have, and it's so fluidly moving and stuff. I was reading about what they were doing with that, and like the the rigs and all that stuff that they had for it, just phenomenal. Yeah, this is uh, Matthew Robbins is the director. He's in that whole world of you know the, the George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, Francis Ford Coppola. He's part of that group, but he just never really had much of a moment to shine because this tanked. 
his next film, um, The Legend of Billy Jean, tanked, but thankfully Spielberg hired him to do better. He's not included, and that did well. Yeah, what's and what's funny about this is this had a uh, graphic novel adaptation that Marvel did, and I had that because you do. I cool. I don't. I don't have it now. I did have it when I was a kid, and I remember it like completely. Like, it was like a little, almost like a like a novella book. That's kind of how it was bound. It was not like uh, like a comic book, comic book, or even what you think of as a as a trade paperback these days. It was just a little uh, like uh, what uh, you know, little yeah, novella sized uh, book. Just, so like early you know, graphic like, novel, right? Uh, even smaller than smaller oh, wow. than that. Like I, I mean, you've, you've seen, yeah, like I said, like it's like a little paperback, uh, not like not like microscopic, but you know, uh, like a choose your own adventure side book. I didn't know this. Matthew Robbins uh, was the writer of Sugarland Express and did uh, additional writing for Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Uh, so that's what got him into the whole field of like possibly you know becoming a director. So. Yeah, most part though, he is still a writer. He's doing a Pinocchio remake. Cause God, there hasn't been enough Pinocchio movies. <laughs> no, we need more Pinocchio. We need we more need King more Arthur movies. We need because... more Robin Hood movies. <laughs> well, no, we we don't need any more King Arthur or Robin Hood. Those have been played out. But Pinocchio, that's the that's the story that will test stand the test of time. Hold on a second. I'm actually interested now. You want to know who's directing it? Who's that? Guillermo del Toro. I don't know if I want that or not. Yeah, so at least <laughs> it's, it's a, a bigger director than I expected. Um, we're going off on a, a tangent here, but this is just one of those classic stories. You all, it, uh, you know, you read about in all those like fantasy novels and all the video games in the '80s seem to be somehow centered. You know, the sword and sorcery uh, games. You know, saving a princess from a dragon. You know, it's you see it right there. Just a, a young, uh, naive boy who hasn't got his skills, but he's got the heart for it. It, it's almost like uh, this in Legend uh, inspired Legend of Zelda. Yeah, what's funny about this is also it's yeah our hero you know, this this little sorcerer's apprentice dude who yeah he's out to save the princess but he doesn't want the princess. Right, that's and like, I can't remember who the girl is, but she is fantastic. Yeah, just well, it's the the whole obvious, you know. Oh, I'm a girl disguised as a boy. I am not a girl. No, of course not. I don't. I am very obviously not a girl. You know, the only time they ever pulled they that off successfully was Pitch Black. Yes, very much. I, I totally agree on that. So, that was... Yeah, she's a good actress. It's just she did not, uh, not portray that very well. Sadly passed away in 2004. Dang. Um, but I think, I think what is interesting about this movie is uh, that it just... It looks like where it's set. You know how you see some of these sword and sorcery movies where it's clearly shot in Canada or or New Zealand, Australia or cheap garbage places, you know, the way that um, like Corman would shoot them in Argentina and stuff like this. This one clearly was shot on location and uh, I think it looks really good uh, even though it's really muddy and uh, you know, wet. Very, very wet. But it looks authentic. Well, it looks, I will say, it looks like fantasy films of this time, which you kind of have this mix of realism, 
mixed with studio stuff, but uh, yeah, you had, you know, they went out and they shot in, you know, not, not necessarily someone's backyard, but they went out into the woods and actually did some of the stuff. So they had all these people just covered in, covered in mud and filth and stuff, walking around, and it, it adds a level of authenticity to to some of these films that, like The Hobbit. Does not. Yeah, all being so many of them are clean. If you look at them, you're like, Ugh. I mean, Lady Hawk. It, I love Lady Hawk, but it looks so clean. It doesn't feel like it's uh, in that place at that time. Yeah, it. There's the actually all two of the films that we saw kind of have that authenticity. Well, actually, no, technically three of those films we saw do have that authenticity. One of them definitely is much more clean. Yeah, it's. Uh, I say Dragon Slayer. It, it did not make its money back, but I think it found a big audience later on video. And this one, I think, holds up the best out of the the fantasy ones. Oh yeah, this this is definitely not not the of the films we saw. I don't think it's the best one, but oh, it no, is no. definitely of the fantasy. This is this is the best of the fantasy. Right, ones. and so our second film is Excalibur, and that has more like. The way he uses lighting and he sets up stuff, it's almost over dramatic. It's like a soap opera. It's trying to be so hard to be epic that sometimes it's really campy. I get what. Oh, what, what, what I, yeah, go ahead. I swear, I started. I I was watching this film and going, "Is John Borman actually just trying to make a comedy? Is he trying to out Python the Pythons?" Yeah, he's kind of a lunatic. You watched Zardoz. You saw how insane his filmmaking can be. Well, it's like, it, the moment, it's like, once he does the Ofortuna drop, I literally wrote, this is a fucking joke, right? Hell, and it's like, hell, this fight sequence would improve with Yakety Sacks. <laughs> then I went and looked up Yakety Sacks on YouTube, turned down the volume of, anytime there was a fight scene, started playing Yakety Sacks. It improves every fight scene. Yeah, it's it's star-studded of people who weren't stars at that time. It's like, oh, I know him, Gabriel Byrne and Liam Neeson, and I think, was it Patrick Stewart, I think, is in this, and Helen Mirren. Yeah. And you're all like, wow, 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 these guys weren't named at the time. Well, yeah, I forgot. This movie was not expensive for, uh, you know, who it tried to cast, but it looked like it cost a lot because he's constantly setting up these scenes that look like they're from a dream. They're true, it, fantasy in more than one way. Yeah, it definitely, and you have that... Uh... He loves his green light. Yes. Everything is bathed in green light, and it gets really annoying really quick. Yeah, and this this is not necessarily about King Arthur. There's a reason why it's called Excalibur. It's all about that sword and everybody. It, it contacts with, you know, the, the lust for it and, and using it to try to do good. And it's, so it's completely about the sword. Yeah, I mean, well, based off, based off uh, the death of Arthur, that the old... Uh, Legend of King Arthur's, which is basically just a bunch of of short stories over the course of this guy's life, and that's right. kind of how the film is. Because there's no real transition. It's just, oh, we're we're here with Uther Pendragon. It, oh, it, now Arthur and the Sword of the Stone. Oh, now Lancelot. Yeah. Now, yeah, it's it's very episodic. And you know, when you watch Conan the Barbarian, there are some episodic elements to it, but it still feels like there's it still feels like there's a constant flow going through. Whereas this one has these fits and starts, fits and starts. And the only thing that's really interesting that keeps me going because I think most of the actors are fucking atrocious. 
is Nicole Williamson oh. as Merlin, and even sometimes he gets silly and campy, and I'm like, is this intentional? What the fuck is going on? <laughs> oh, I was I was starting to uh, I, I need to find my note on this, but I was starting to figure out who would these people be if they were the Pythons, <laughs> and I went. Uh, Arthur's totally Eric Idle. Merlin is totally Graham Chapman. Yes, and I think I, and I think I changed it at one point where I went. Uh, uh, I think I said, oh, wait, no, now Arthur is going to be played by, uh, uh, oh, heck, where did I say? It was like, basically, yeah, I kept, I kept changing the cast <laughs> as I went along. And Michael Payne and, has to be Morgana. Yeah, it, and here's the thing, it's like, this movie is horny as hell. Oh, yes. Like, <laughs> like I, and I'm going like, I really think John Borman was working out something in his life, because... I mean, it's not just not just a hetero, you know, hetero horny. It's very homoerotic. Oh yeah. Like, yeah. there's a point where seriously, I'm pretty sure Lancelot wants to nail Arthur because he is kissing that he's kissing of caliber in a very suggestive yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. I'm just licking the blade off. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, like I literally going into this film, I literally only knew two things about it, and that was the. Uh, you know, like the sword coming out of the water for the first time, and then the fact that it had Helen Mirren in it, and I was very looking forward to that stuff. Yes. I really wanted to see young, super hot Helen Mirren as opposed to modern day super hot Helen Mirren. <laughs> no arguments here. <laughs> Completely agree. Um, yeah, so that one, I think that if you have a sense of humor, you're going to like it. If you take this dead serious, it's going to be weird. It's going to be a rough journey for you. Yeah, it's not a good film. But if you just go into it like on this is the most serious comedy of all time, yeah, it's definitely filled with. It's, there's so much humor in this. Like, uh, oh my god! Like again, Nicole Williamson's vocal performance. Oh, I, it, it was it. Uh, Arthur is started to be played by John Cleese at one point. That was yeah. it. By the way, Arthur whoever plays Arthur is just. I think it's Nigel Terry is just the worst. Nigel Terry, yeah, such a oh, goofball his, performance. I started laughing my ass off because, you know, it's after he pulls the sword from the stone and people are kind of arguing about it, he runs off and uh, Merlin catches up to him. And he's got this derp face the entire time, just... He's like going... You didn't do a second cut? Second yeah, take? No, no, no. This, is, this works. You sure? Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's like, no, don't, don't. You don't, don't want to do this one. All right, what is our next film? How about Clash of the Titans? Uh, how about no? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I recall your text, uh, your, not your text, but your tweet about that. Oh, my God. I was so sure it was going to fucking rock because I saw it as a kid and I thought it ruled. And I saw a little bit of it about 20 years ago. I go, oh, the special effects are pretty rough. But it's still pretty cool. And then, I know, everybody talked about when the remake came out and how, oh, the original's so much better and how they get rid of TikTok. I think that's the name of the, the owl. And, oh, uh, Bubo. 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 Well, I don't know what the hell I'm thinking then. I think, oh, I'm thinking of Return to Oz, TikTok. Um, and I was like, okay, it's, it's got to be better than, because I didn't really care for the 2010. Um, I'm a big fan of Wrath of the Titans for some reason. I don't know why. But um, I watched this and I said, they're going, oh, dear God. Oh, this is long. This is long as fuck. Then it's so episodic and just, oh, it took forever. And then finally the Medusa scene happens and it picks up speed. But there's so many weird ass shit in this. 
Well, part of it's like nothing really happens in this movie. But God, there's a lot of Really, until he gets. Yeah, and okay, I pretty sure I've only seen this film in the context of school, like in middle school, and instead of teaching us anything, the uh, teacher just said, "You know, we're gonna watch Clash of the Titans <laughs> over like two days." But I do not remember the boobs and butts in this movie. Was and there nudity? Like, granted, I don't remember I know any we, nudity. Yeah, there... at the in the beginning of the film, after uh, uh, when the uh, kids uh, they wash up on the island, uh, the you know mother and the child wash up. Percy oh. and whatever. Well, maybe you watch the edited it, television version. Maybe, but uh, and there's also like a shot of butts uh, when they're about to sacrifice the the princess at the end too. But it's like. Then again, I did think about, well, we did see the Franco, Zifarelli, Romeo, and Juliet, which has uh, Juliet topless at one we point. We watched Rumblefish, and my teacher did not realize how R-rated that was. This is considered a classic and unholy uh, genre film because it's Ray Harryhausen's like last pr- big production. And yes, some of the stuff he has is unique. I get that, but it doesn't meld. And a lot of times they're using it, and I don't understand why they're using his stop motion. The guy who plays Sarek, Spock's dad, isn't he the main demon villain guy? Uh, I think so. Yeah, well, originally it was just going to be a puppet, and they decided to actually go and cast an actor, so there's just a couple of shots where a guy's, you know, you know, just anything that's where a close-up of his face or the up from chest up. Yeah. And that's it. Everything yeah. else is stop motion for him. I just thought, how hard is it to get a guy in a suit, because he does have dialogue, how hard is it to get a guy in a suit and just move his tail around? We just watched Dragon Slayer, where they made, you know, that puppet so articulate, and you couldn't pull this off. And just the balancing between the two. And when they fight giant monsters, hey, in the 60s, it looked kind of cool. 20 years later, it looks like hell. <laughs> yeah, like, well, literally, the only good thing in this film is the Medusa fight. Yeah. And... For some reason, I seem to remember the fight with the Kraken at the end being longer, but no, that's like yeah. 10 minutes at most. Yeah, I, I mean, it seemed less than that. But here's the thing is, Harry Hamlin, in a lot of the problem with these kind of movies, is the main character is a dud. I've seen Harry Hamlin. He's been good in stuff. And he's very good in the Medusa scene. It's almost as if someone else took over to direct that. He's just, everybody in it's so fucking dull or over the top. Now, well, part of it's like, okay, I, I, I used to know more about Greek mythology and stuff like that, but for, and maybe this is how it was delivered in, in the original stories, but Perseus kind of seems to be a shitty hero because he's just gifted everything. <laughs> you just, here you go, you get a hat and you get a hat of invisibility and a super kick-ass shield and an awesome sword, and I'm going to give you give you, you know, I'm going to have you give this uh, owl, and granted he gets a mechanical version of it, but still, it's like, he doesn't actually earn these boons or anything no, through no. Uh, you should have to work being for it. clever. That's a bummer. It's not like, well, I guess it's before video games, because that mentality has kind of changed now, but that, no, because that was part of D&D campaigns, right, is you had to go and earn the, the stuff, right? Yeah, and that was, well, that's all Tolkien-based, but it's still based off of all these sort of uh, fantasy tropes where, yeah, where your hero had to go and actually earn these things from the gods. You don't, gods shouldn't just hand you your, you know, your awesome shit at the beginning of the story. Right, like in Crawl, you had to earn it. (laughs) 
Yeah, it. Yeah, and he's just kind of this weird-looking, lazy fuck who uh, manages to just everything good just kind of happens to him. It's it's he's like the least least effort for this guy. In and, and yes, he does have the fight. Uh, he does have the fight, little poor uh, poor demon-looking dude who just got screwed over by the gods. Yeah, that it, that should have been the hero. That right, guy got screwed. Right, you should have made the villain the hero. Yeah, he he has at least a more interesting story. Percy is just kind of do, uh, doodles his way through everything and finally uh, just gets you know gets laid for his troubles. You know, he you, you want to talk about privilege? <laughs> no kidding. But seriously, that Medusa scene is worth seeing. If you don't want to watch the rest of the movie, just go to that. It's a ten minute sequence and everything in it, the lighting, the the pace, the tension, is unbelievably good. Yeah, that's that is the standout. That hands down, everything about the Medusa scene is amazing. Yeah, then that is like, too long and it's too dull. Yeah, it, that's the other thing is like I was looking, going, that's it's just like just a hair under two hours, and it feels longer. It yeah. just paced so badly. Um, our next film, I think, is absolutely perfect. I would give it an A+. It's my favorite John Carpenter film, who may be my favorite director. Escape from New York is fucking tops. Yes. I. Uh, there's. What can you say about Escape from New York other than it's one of the best, uh, most... It is, weirdly, the most underrated, perfectly rated cult classic film yeah it's a weird line i think part of it is because it's a little damaged by the sequel which i'm fine with it's not good but i know why it failed um but people like oh that one sucked the first one must suck too and i was like why'd you watch the second one first i don't know because it's new Uh, i didn't realize it was a (laughs) sequel um but i think the fact that it was tightly budgeted but he had all the right people there's no excess which is what kind of damaged the sequel it's six and a half million dollars uh and just using very minimal practical effects uh and and just a tight scary story i mean this is a thriller sci-fi action film yeah it it and what's fun about it is okay kurt russell's doing probably the People are going to crucify me when I say it like this, but he's doing the most laziest impression of uh, Kurt Russell. I mean, Kurt, Kurt Russell's doing of uh, Clint Eastwood. Right. He just basically he's just doing a Clint Eastwood impression, and that's it. But Kurt Russell does it so well, <laughs> and it's the fact that this is a like dark, uh, darkly comical film, you know, because it's. There's a lot of humor in this film that you, you know, kind of like, ooh, that's, ooh, that's mean. Yeah, everybody <laughs> in it is weird. That's another thing. Oh, the, uh, my favorite character is, uh, I can't, I can't think of the character's name, but it's, uh, the Duke's right-hand man. He's, oh, uh, played yeah, by Frank yeah, Doubleday. Frank Doubleday. I so, can't remember, uh, the character name, though. It's, like, Rodrigo or Rocco or something like that. It's something like that, and he's the weirdest looking bastard just kind of comes up and you know like he's the first thing that we see in New York and he just kind of like sets the tone perfectly for okay once you get into New York shit's gonna be weird <laughs> I love Cabby he's one of my favorites Brain is um, a fun to, uh, 
Brain and what was his wife's name? Played by uh, Adrian Barbeau. Oh, uh, Maggie. Uh, Maggie. Uh, Maggie. Maggie. Yeah, and then we have, of course, a uh, uh, glorious short appearance by Lee Van Cleef. Um, trying to remember who else. Donald Pleasance as the president, which is weird, but they explained that it was supposed to be the love child of Margaret Thatcher and the American president. And Ronald Reagan, yeah. Ronald Reagan, okay. <laughs> but it's like, yeah, what's funny is also it has a lot of, there's a lot of weird, interesting Cold War uh, and, you know, kind of anti-communist sentiment because you have the... Uh, the people who take over Air Force One are, you know, talking about uh, the imperialist United States and, you know, how we're going to, how how we must stop how hor- you know, the terrible thing of, of this. And yet, it seems like there was going to be some sort of peace talks between uh, the U.S., Russia, and China for some war that we never, we only get like a cursory uh, little bits and pieces of and. I'm very curious to actually know more about this, you know, what was actually going on outside of this story. Yeah, I'm wondering if, because there's been a comic book of this, and it jumps around in his timeline between the, the two movies, I wonder if they ever did a prequel, uh, kind of to build that world before they shut down New York and, you know, the close aftermath. The only thing we ever get as a prequel is the cut scene that's on the Blu-ray, where it shows him getting arrested in the bank robbery. Yeah, I guess there was a... Uh, it was the novelization by Alan Dean Foster that goes into background and oh, okay. stuff, where they, they talk about, like, Lee Van Cleef's character and, and Snake's while they're, you know, being soldiers in this war and all, all the stuff that's kind of going on with, with that, as well as even explaining a little bit more of uh, uh, that the woman that... Uh, Snake meets in the little convenience store that gets killed in like one of the most awesome zombie sequences. That's not a zomb- That's not a zombie film. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's close to it though. You can feel there's a little bit of Romero influence in here. Yeah. It. Well, it's like like this whole thing was like shot in uh, East St. Louis. Uh, like there was a fire in like '76 or '77 that kind of like kind of lay waste to the area. So there's still a lot of abandoned buildings and just you know, really run down. So instead of trying to shoot it in New York or shoot it somewhere else, they managed to actually find a place out out here. Yeah, and it's grimy and it's fun to look at and, and horrifying at the same time. You know, this was a big hit, not just in America, but internationally. And this and The Road Warrior end up influencing so much of the post-apocalyptic genre for the next 20 years. Uh, Mad Max more yeah. because I think it was cheaper to do that because Escape New York you have to get like blocks to film in and it's a little more expensive. Oh, the uh, the one of the best things in this is the how they fake that wireframe model of the city. Yeah, I had no idea. Well, I really thought it was thought just... that was, I thought it was early CGI, like just you know our uh, Vectrex kind of style, but it wasn't. Yeah, they just built. They had a model they built, wrapped it in uh, in like a green black light tape. And just had a, a camera fly through it, looking like it's a wire model. Yeah, and isn't James Cameron responsible for designing these effects? Am I wrong? Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't. I think so. Yeah, I think. Well, I know he was involved in the film. I don't remember if that was specifically him or not, but probably. Yeah, because he was at New World at the time, and they were kind of a smaller special effects house, and that's how he got attached to. Because this is an independent production. This is before uh, John Carpenter goes studio, which happens the next year with the thing. 
but uh, he's still with these scrappy little studios like the Avco Embassy who don't have a big warehouse, you know, of stuff to use or their own teams. They have to go out and you know get other people to work for them. Yeah, man, it's it it shows both in like it shows how well if you know how to make out of get every single you know uh, penny out of your production. You know, John Carpenter's time and time again has shown how to do this. Well, I don't know about <laughs> Ghost of Mars, but I'll let well, that one. Well, cool. later on, yeah. well, later on, you know, yeah, yeah. once he's given money, then <laughs> given money, then take then money taken away in the same at the same moment. Yeah, it's. Um, I think it's, he's more creative when he's on a tighter budget. Yeah, well, it's, that's how everybody is. You have to. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's an absolutely fascinating film, loaded with fun characters. And I said it's not action heavy like people seem to remember. There's only a little bit of action. Most of it's like a pursuit. It feels like early video game. The way it's all set up, you know, you got to get through this and this and this and hide from here. You know, it's a little stealthy. You know, and, and grab this to get out of this. It's really interesting how this, uh, maybe it's, not intentionally, but well, has an influence on video games. It's very well because it's very obviously had an influence on Metal Gear because part of it's like that's specifically where uh, Hideo Kojima kind of came up with uh, the idea for uh, oh Solid uh, Snake Solid Snake yeah, yeah okay. Snake Plissken yeah which it's... is also why in the second one he goes he has a uh, Iroquois Plissken as a fake as a fake name <laughs> that's funny alright so that is my choice of the four is that your favorite of the four? That is my favorite of the four. Yeah, right, cool. So that is it for this episode. We I don't know what the list is for eighty two yet, or do we? I can't remember. Are we gonna do? We do. We do have the list, but I don't. Let me see if I can find our list for eighty two. I have it. It's a uh, Blade Runner. Uh, I I picked the director's cut. I or the final cut. I think. I was good. Yeah, I was good at final cut. Uh, Tron, Beastmaster, Dark Crystal, and I want to add a fifth one if you wouldn't mind. We don't have to, but E. T. How do you not talk about E.T.? It's been a long time since I've seen E.T., so I should probably see it again. I think all of these are going to except yeah. Beastmaster. I don't know how to get you Beastmaster. I had to pay $40 from, or uh, 30 yeah, $40 for my Blu-ray collector's edition from Vinegar Syndrome. Yeah, I'll find it. Okay. All right, so that is it. Check us out on Facebook under Video Night Podcast, and uh, where can we find you, John? I'm on Twitter, musician, M-Y-U-Z-I-S-H-I-O-N. Hit me up. Talk about things. All right, everybody. Have a good night. Later.